Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melker, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE and founded a small oil and gas consultancy and became a podcast host. Big thanks to the Offshore Technology Conference for allowing us to be here. Even bigger thanks to Fifth Ring for sponsoring the Offshore Technology Conference Podcast Pavilion. Fifth Ring is a global B2B marketing and communications agency with over 30 years of experience in the energy sector and beyond. And its presence in Houston, Aberdeen, and Singapore enables the agency to help companies all over the world build better brands and sell more stuff. Learn more about Fifth Ring by visiting fifthring.com. Link is in the show notes below. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Faisal Khan, Michael O'Connor Chair, Professor of Chemical Engineering at Texas A&M. Dr. Khan is also the director of the Mary, of the Michael, Michael K. O'Connor? Yes, that's right. Process Safety Center and the director of the Ocean Energy Safety Institute. Thank you for joining us today, Faisal. Thank you for having me, Elena. Yeah. Well, this is your resume is quite extensive. I didn't. I'm not going to get into it, but tell us some of the highlights that you think are um, kind of your your favorite things, the things you want people to know about about you. So, well, first of all, thank you for having me, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, uh, sharing some of uh, uh, my experience and giving some of my thought. So, to talk about, so I'm a chemical engineer, as you mentioned, at Texas A&M currently, but. Um, Dominantly, from last uh, more than two and a half decades, I have invested most of my time in offshore oil and gas sectors, both in um, uh, northeast of Canada, but also equally in the Pacific uh, and also in North Sea. So what I bring to the today's discussions is a slightly unique aspect of safety and risk engineering dominantly into the oil and gas sector and specifically talking about upstreams and midstreams, which are critical. And so over the last uh, two and a half decades, I have invested time in observing and seeing and help developing some of the harsh environment of your oil and gas production facilities up in northeast of Canada, a place called Newfoundland, and uh, its Canadian countries such as Norway and northeast of UK. So, so Faisal, just, just a second. Some of our uh, listeners are not subject matter experts, and they just sort of drop in to get a little bit of oil and gas. So why would you say that that's extreme or uh, difficult in so, Newfoundland? Uh, so offshore oil and gas, as by its nature itself, has 
the upstream hazards such as high pressures and uncertainties in the reservoirs and other. But in certain environment, uh, there are external hazards that get imposed, such as in when we talk about northeast of uh, North America, especially in northeast of Canada, you have a very unique hazards of uh, uh, icebergs, packed ice, oh, and uh, other right. particular conditions, which makes uh, operation extremely challenging and unsafe uh, for that matter. And these operations in these locations require out-of-box thinking to be able to address these challenges upfront through design changes and considering occurrence and minimizing the risk. So it is not a, uh, as we say, in a cookie cutter type of operations where you can take a facility from place A, a benign environment such as Middle East, uh, and try to place it up in the Northeast, it's not going to work. So that's other unique hazards which we face up in North and many other parts of the world. Well, thank you for clarifying that for me. When I think about extreme or the challenges, my mind immediately goes to either the water or um, the rock, the reservoirs, and I think about those extreme environments as well. I forget about the surface, because I don't do surface, so I'm glad that you uh, shared that with, uh, with uh, some of our listeners and, and those who have you know, not worked uh, in, in those environments before. So, so your background has um, uniquely positioned you to be able to talk about this today. Indeed. Um, I do understand quite a bit of uh, the subsurface uh, challenges, uh, both in the uncertainty aspect of some unique challenges which can often lead to catastrophic events uh, from a subsurface uh, perspective. But I would emphasize that equally there are surface hazards which uh, continue to pose significant threats uh, to our oil and gas operations. And as we move into the energy transitions, moving into the different form of renewable energy uh, utilizing ocean, uh, these continue to pause and require, uh, you know, significant thinking and out-of-the-box solutions, which in some cases doesn't exist as we speak. Yeah, talk, talk to us a little bit about the renewables that you're referring to and that, and that context. So, uh, as, as you mentioned, one of the major efforts um, in Texas A&M, we have been leading an Ocean Energy Safety Institute that came up in existence. And though a, a major part of it is focused on the conventional oil and gas, but the equal proportion is being focused on renewable energies. So the two topics of a greater interest to all of us up in here, Gulf of Mexico, so only the Northeast and Pacific Earth remain to be the floating wind. And I'm specifically talking about from an ocean energy perspective. So there are renewables which are land-based, can be exploited, but just for the audience, we are today dominantly talking about ocean-related energy resources. So, so are you saying um, floating wind? So yes. the wind turbines are on floating platforms, probably deeper water? What? Yes, could be deeper waters, and uh, dominantly in deeper water. The shallow water can easily be a fixed platform or something that is removable. Uh, but uh, if we wish to utilize uh, larger capacities of then it is understood that these going to be into uh, the deeper water and the floating because then you have maneuverability just like traditionally we have used in oil and gas 
where we have certain range of um, production capitalization and as with the world depletes and the life of a asset decreases we can able to move it from point a to b so same concept is for offshore floating wind as we speak but uh, we also been actively exploring the marine energy such as tidals wave and other form of energy that is start to play a significant role if not the dominant roles and what we are going to see in coming decade or so that ocean will be utilized at a vertical column where perhaps on the surface uh, you might be utilizing an offshore wind floating or fixed and then on the sub column of the waters we'll be utilizing some of the wave and current energy for utilizing and for that matter the, the subsurface or uh, or sediment could also be used either as a storage mechanism for of our decarbonization purposes or but could also be used for um, traditional fossil fuel extraction okay so we're talking about oil and gas wind marine energy carbon capture or carbon capture and storage carbon the storage part what's left geothermal did yes. you ever have geothermal offshore <laughs> well i must say that to those who are being in petroleum engineering or geosciences they are continue to explore geothermal aspect of both ocean and the subsurface uh, energy through the ocean system uh, that i haven't explored yet but i bet that is a significant interest to some of our uh, geoscientists uh, who are keen exploring that area. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the energy uh, profile is a function of market. So if there's, you know, a, a buyer and a seller, <laughs> you know, you could have a geothermal uh, installation yeah. as well. Absolutely. Wow, that just I just blew my own mind. So uh, I'm sorry. Let me let us take us back to the con to the conversation. So, okay. So your your background and your role as the um, director for the Ocean Energy Safety Institute is part of what we're talking about. So the so are you're speaking today here at the uh, Offshore Technology Conference, which I've neglected to say we're recording live on the exhibit floor of the uh, Ocean of the Offshore Technology Conference 2003 at the OGGN Podcast Pavilion, booth 139. So tell us, um, Faisal, about um, the presentation that you'll be talking about today and that part of the program. Good. So, uh, for the audience's uh, benefit, so I do wanted to dwell a bit on the what actually OSI is and how and what its really go real goals are. So, Ocean Energy Safety Institute is a unique partnership. Uh, I would say public-private partnership being built by the federal government through two of its agencies, uh, DOE, in fact, Department of Energy, and Department of Interior, coming together. Uh, pulling up the money to invest in safety and sustainability on ocean energy resource development. So the focus remains to be the safety and sustainability. So what the basic uh, space that OSI is hoping to explore is the region, the technology, the upskilling of the workers and the knowledge that doesn't have the commercial viability which industry or other matter may not choose to pursue because of its quote-unquote non-commercial viability. So the government funds are meant to invest in upgrading these aspects of safety which are generalizable, usable for our industry stakeholders. 
So that is a very unique space carved out for OSI to be able to have a meaningful impact in the safety domain, enabling our industries through our government funding to move the needle, ensure that our ocean remain a safe exploration and production venue for energy. Yeah, that's real important. And just to share with the audience, since I'm former Department of Energy, Energy is a science organization, not a um, regulator. And uh, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement under the Department of the Interior is the regulator for offshore oil and gas and other energy forms, which is why uh, the wind and the marine energy are also being considered. And if there was geothermal, they'd be in charge of that too with respect to regulation. So I just wanted to clear that little piece up. So tell us more. So, with that specific goal in mind, as I mentioned, this is a public-private partnership. So the aim remains to move the needle through our industry engagement. So the sponsors have engaged Texas A&M University through Texas Engineering Experimentation, which is a, an arm of Texas A&M University, to administer a significant fund that is up to order of a $52 million to invest into applied R&D so that we could able to achieve the goal of safe and sustainable ocean energy resource development. The funds need to be invested in, as I mentioned, applied research through our direct industry engagement. So that means the research investment has to go where our stakeholders, which are industry, feel they have a need but that may not be commercially viable to invest from their perspective. So we are happy investing in that particular space to move the safety aspect of our energy development. So that's what the focus is going to be in today's panel discussions with an engaged colleague from our sponsor agencies and also from our industry IB board chair. That, that's, that's great, that's great. And of course, um, the, um, the work that is sponsored, I should, with tax dollars, I want to say, is a competitive solicitation. Uh, and these are reviewed, and it's a very rigorous process. So really, it's whoever is selected uh, for the work, or this work that is um, selected to be sponsored, is really um, gone through a rigorous process of review and uh, comparison to other opportunities. And so I want to say that you try to invest in the cream of the crop because obviously there's not enough money to do everything we would love to do. Um, so, you know, uh, choosing those uh, technologies that would provide the greatest contribution um, is, is a real important thing. So do you have some solicitations out or have you had some recent solicitations? Good. So yes, absolutely, Elena. So we recently concluded uh, the call for proposal for oil and gas. We have a, a very overwhelming response for that call. And currently we are reviewing the proposals and going to make a recommendation to our sponsors. Uh, for uh, final approval. There are two calls up uh, open as we speak. One is in the area of wind energy, which will be closing in mid-July, and marine energy, which is uh, closing on mid-June. So these are open solicitations. Any consort OSI consortium member could be apply for these funds and be able to competitively peer-reviewed and may be successful in moving forward. Well, what if you're not a member? Uh, the OSI membership 
is free. So any entity, US-based entity, which is registered in US tax register, is open to apply for its consortium membership through our website, which uh, you could even access simply typing on Google OSI Tamu, or if that matters, please try attending the, uh, the, 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 the discussion today at uh, 2 o'clock and you will see that uh, into it. Or reach out to any one of us on OSI team and we'll be happy to share it. So once again, OSI membership is open to all entities, whether in a private sector, public institutions, in fact, national labs or NGOs. And there's no cost associated with it, except that they need to be a US registered entity, engage in applied research, and their interests align with OSI. Very good, very good. So anybody can become a member, which means that anybody can apply for these uh, research dollars. Um, is there a cost share associated with the research if you win? Yes, so according to our sponsor requirement, that's and that has been the part of a call for proposal that we expect that there is a 20% or more cost share. And these cost share could be in the form of in-kind or other type of investment into the project. Okay, so yes, we do anticipate 20 plus percent of cost share for the funding you are seeking. Yeah, that, that's important because um, uh, the Department of Energy's requirements uh, by law are that there be a minimum of 20% cost share. So you take the uh, total cost of the uh, project and 20% uh, of that is what is required by the uh, partner to the government. The government spends the other 80%, so it's really a, a good deal. And that's why there's such competition for, for these research dollars. Yeah, very good. So, um, so who reviews these these proposals? Like, how how do I mean people who want to become involved in this? Maybe they don't have a project, but they're very interested in supporting these kinds of efforts. So, how, how does that work? So, uh, anyone who is interested in participating on our OSI website, we have the list of institutions and also applied R and D industries who has uh, greater interest to be moving forward the safety focused research. So I invite anyone interested to visit, reach out to the member institutions or reach out to us. We'll be happy to connect them to the interested both uh, private institutions who are engaged in that or public institutions such as universities and the lab who are keen to work for it. So that partnership is an important element to be uh, successful into the OSI uh, funding call. Uh, the funding, as I mentioned, is being competitive, it is very transparent. The funding costs are based on the roadmap which is prepared through an exhaustive engagement of a stakeholder that is dominantly industry-led engagement. And uh, we'll talk about that once we come to that particular topic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, you've got solicitations out on the street who can apply. And, and the website is oesi.tamu.edu. And we'll also put that in the show notes for people who are interested. And it's uh, so M members can... Um, uh, compete for these funds and anyone can become a member That's right. so it's just a matter of sort of registering if you will in order to be um, part of this and and you were saying about the other organizations that are partnership organizations are you suggesting that if you wanted to partner with someone for some of this research that you would help people find each other for partnership yes that is one of our 
uh, strongest encouragement that we would like to see the cross functionalities among our uh, proponents. So we strongly encourage industry-university partnership. So particularly, this has been our focus and in fact, a, I could say that almost enforcement that we encourage our academic institution to work very closely with our industry partners and vice versa. We also strongly encourage our industry members to try finding the relevant interests in academia so that they join forces in order to compete and, and make a very compelling process and that help OSI, that help the project and that help the federal government's mandate of achieving a, a safer offshore energy development. Yes, yes. Okay, so um, competitive solicitations, Topic areas that are, are that are of interest are listed in the solicitation according to roadmap. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. Is all this information also on the website? Absolutely. So all the information or the topics or the buzzwords I have used in these are all very clearly explained and delimited on the website. For example, roadmap that uh, highlight where our industry or stakeholders believe the focus should be for OSI in a specific area such as oil and gas or marine and wind are clearly documented and the timeline being proposed that how they should be. In fact, we will be conducting a refresh of that particular uh, roadmap uh, in coming months again to re-engage to ensure that we remain relevant over a year since we we started the program and did first solicitation. Have we been on the track? If some new opportunities have come up, we want to hear back. And that's the reason why we will re-engage with our stakeholders to see that if the roadmap remains relevant in today's context. And if there are revisions required, we'll take their feedback, run through the process, and a revised roadmap will be circulated to all consortium members and provided on the website for public dissemination. So what's the size of these projects? How much money is a project? Uh, I mean, these big projects, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or several hundred thousand dollars? Or what's the size of projects? I would projects? say uh, per year, about several hundred thousand dollars of capacity. We do encourage people, if they have the proposal that is multi-year, that they can able to uh, apply, we will use gate-based approach. That means we need to demonstrate that first phase is successfully completed before we can able to support and fund their second phase. But yes, the funding is in, of the order of a few hundred thousand dollars per year. Excellent, excellent. Well, this is kind of exciting. So yeah. what are some of the topics on the roadmaps that, um, that are put forth so people could think about, um, you know, where they might apply? Uh, so, it, depending upon the energy sectors, there is a wide range of topics which I'm sure those who are relevant in the field are pressing needs. Such example is the, from an oil and gas perspective, uh, the subsurface challenges such as well controls and relief wells and kicks and managed pressure drilling standardizations. So, the, the, the topic that uh, keeps many of the oil operators sleepless at night are are there and they are in very uniquely defined in the space because all industries may not have a greater in investment opportunity indeed because of the 
lack of mentioned commercial viability. But we at an OSI willing to invest that because we truly believe, based on the feedback we see from industry, that these are game changers if we are able to move forward in these aspects. So standardization of a different aspect of safety and risk studies are one of the clear knowledge gaps identified. Likewise, in terms of workforce development, we identified, or industry identified gaps, which we are trying to put forward as a, as a possibility of a road a investment into the both industry and university partnership to develop or upskill our workers to be more safety conscious, safety trained, and able to perform the uh, operation safely. So these are relatively early TRL type projects. Indeed. Uh, I could say that uh, yes, we are open for all TRL level as to this big. Uh, we do not restrict that it has to be of a specific TRL level. Some of the studies could be at a conceptual stage and individual may have an interest to move to TRL higher level once they are successfully and we are happy to walk with them into that development process. And everything they would need to know about how to structure a proposal would be in the solicitation that could be found online. Absolutely. So the structure of the proposal, the element they need to be documenting, emphasizing in their proposals and supporting document, for example, the technology transfer. If it is a higher or mid-level TRL level, what would be the protocol and how they wish to see proceed, all the details are being made available. In fact, we today will have some of these discussions in, in the panel discussion where we'll specifically talk about uh, technology transfer protocols for OSI. Great, great. Do you think that your presentation would be available after the uh, after you present today, possibly on the website or some uh, key slides? Or? Sure, indeed. I'm hoping that once I have the uh, uh, approval from the sponsor, which I don't see as much a challenge, I'll make that accessible to the public website so that can be source of information. Great, great. Well, we are almost at the end of our time. Are there some other things you wanted to share uh, briefly with our audience before we well, close I out? Well, I take the opportunity to invite all my audience to please review the website and see if you have an interest in contributing to the knowledge creation, the workforce, and the technology development in the safety aspect for ocean energy. You are most welcome to join the consortium and be part of this change. So, I'm welcome you on my personal behalf as, a, as an academician, but also equally as a OSI director. Thank excellent, you for excellent. Me. So Dr. Faisal Khan, Michael O'Connor Chair, Professor of Chemical Engineering at Texas A&M University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Elena, for having me. Thank you, and thank you everyone for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you'd like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melker, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.